All right, if you can turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But then Cephas came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before a certain man came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. When they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though Jews, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Good morning. Uh, let me pray. Father, thanks for your word, and I ask, Holy Spirit, that as we are studying this and unpacking what you've written through Paul, that you would speak directly to our spirits, our minds, our hearts in regards to the things we need to hear from you, not simply just for conviction and knowledge, but that our lives would be changed, that we would be more like you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Discovered over the last chapter and a half of Galatians, Paul's passion for freedom and his passion for the truth of the gospel. And in looking at the first half of chapter 2, Paul dealt with these false brothers who were spying on the early church. And so now we're here in the second half of chapter 2, where Paul dealt with church leadership, and namely a guy named Peter. And last week, I mentioned that we need to be really careful about those inside the church, and perhaps even more so than those outside the church. We need to be careful about those in the church. And here's a case for that belief, starting in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So here was this face-to-face confrontation between two Christian brothers, two brothers who loved Jesus, two men of God, both apostles, both obviously in conflict with one another. And so the question is, what was this conflict? Well, Paul saw hypocrisy coming from Peter and he didn't see that fitting for Christian character. Verse 12, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So you imagine Paul's frustration here. He just had a meeting with Peter and James about the unity of the gospel, how it is a message of freedom, and that anything more than salvation by grace through faith is not the gospel message. And right after that meeting, right when they were in Jerusalem, Paul had to confront Peter about this issue that they had 
already had a meeting about and that they had already agreed upon what the gospel message is. So he confronts Peter about this hypocrisy. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now the word hypocrisy, it has its roots in theater. A hypocrite in a theatrical act pretended to be someone else. So they were play acting a part. And what we find here in verses 12 and 13 was Peter's and Barnabas's claim to be people who believed in freedom that we have in Jesus, but they didn't live out always what they believed. See, Peter believed that there was no additional actions needed to that of the faith of salvation or for salvation. And he confessed that with the other Christian leaders that were there in Jerusalem. So there was Paul, there was James, there was John, Barnabas was there, and they even agreed upon this orthodoxy, this Christian orthodoxy, in front of Titus, who was a Gentile Christian from Greece. But then they started acting, they started pretending to be like someone else. With other Christian Jews who believed that circumcision was necessary for salvation, Peter acted as if his motives for being with them was loyalty to the law of Moses. And that's why he was with them rather than standing up for the truth of the gospel. And he was so fearful that he removed himself from his true convictions and separated from the Christian Gentiles in Antioch. And so he just went with what would allow him to blend in with the churches that he was primarily serving rather than standing up for the truth. We're told in the Bible why he did this, and the reason was fear that he feared the Judaizers. Paul confronted Peter about this because Peter was clearly wrong. Because hypocrisy has no place in the church. Yet, we find so much of it in the church. And many of you have been hurt by the church because of its hypocrisy. Now, God knew that hypocrisy would be a major issue for the church. So, here we find Paul opposing Peter about it. It's right here in the Bible. It's not hidden. The Bible, God is not trying to cover up that hypocrisy is there in the church. The Bible is very transparent about the church's leaders' flaws. Because the Bible is truth. It's not going to hide anything. It doesn't attempt to hide anyone's misgivings, even the leaders of the church. And so here Paul could not let this slide because it was just simply wrong. It was hypocrisy. And from that... Peter misled other people in the church. And because of this false appearance, Peter even misled church leaders like Barnabas and other Jewish Christians. So when we are people of influence, when we affect people's lives, we can mislead even those who are considered leaders. Right? Even people who are people of influence. Barnabas was a leader in the church. He was known for his encouragement. His name means son of encouragement. He was the one who helped Paul start his ministry when others were skeptical of Paul's conversion. Barnabas was the one who brought Paul with him to introduce him to the apostles and vouched for his conversion. He's the one church leader sent to Antioch when they heard that many Gentiles were coming to the Lord, coming to faith in Jesus, and that's who they sent was Barnabas. Barnabas was the one Paul brought with him to Jerusalem to talk to these church leaders about the freedom in Jesus. And so we can all use a Barnabas in our lives, right? Just this 
fun-loving guy with a purple dinosaur costume and he loves you and you love him. But all of us are sinners. We're all sinners. We're all sinful. And no matter how good we are in our spiritual peaks of our lives, we're still sinful. Right? We're, we're fallen people who all need Jesus. And it's so important for us to be self-aware. To know we are fallen people who have been created with different personality types. And with those personality types, we have different strengths and we have different weaknesses. And perhaps Barnabas' personality type made him more susceptible to being led astray. And Paul's personality type actually allowed him to be impervious to these Judaizers. I think Peter and Barnabas had similarities in their personality types. Right? They both probably had this sanguine type of personality, which is being very people-oriented. They had other personality types blended in there, but I think that that's the part of their personality that allowed them to be more vulnerable to Judaizers. Now, we don't have time to go into all the personality traits and all that kind of stuff, but it's fascinating, and if you're interested in it, sign up for the life skills class because they haven't gotten there yet. But with each personality type, there are strengths and there are weaknesses. And it's so important for us to keep in mind that we need a plurality of leadership within the church so that we can kind of help each other out with those things. It's important to have people who are people-oriented. But it can't always be about people orientation because sometimes in a church community, we need to get things done. right? And we need to confront things that are off. So we need someone like Paul who has the conviction that they are right and they carry through with these things that are in their head to go through. And that's what is like a choleric type of personality. But we also need the Barnabas types, right? Because the Barnabas types need to chill people like Paul out. Calm down, bro. Like You're being too cuckoo. So be careful of those inside the church. We're fallen. We're all fallen. We have strengths and weaknesses with our personalities. And we live with this fallen state and our weaknesses that can lead us to hypocrisy where we don't do what we truly believe. Peter's corresponding actions did not match his beliefs. It did not match his convictions. And Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. For now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And there's that tension. There's that tension that we all experience between what we know in the core, in our inner being, what we really believe, our convictions, but it comes out so differently 
in our actions. It comes out so differently in our words. And we're just like Peter. See, they all believed the same thing in that meeting in Jerusalem. And they were totally united in belief and in the gospel message that they proclaimed. But then a totally different outcome when Peter shows up in Antioch in the midst of these Judaizers. Verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? See, Peter said he believed in the freedom in Jesus. That there was no difference between Jews and Gentiles. And Peter himself lived like a Gentile. So Paul was saying, what's up with that? Why are you doing that? And you notice that Paul confronted Peter publicly before them all. Now, deciding to confront publicly versus confronting privately, that takes discernment. Because if you confront publicly when it should be done privately, that can be disastrous, and the opposite is true too. So how do we know when to confront publicly and when to confront privately? Well, the Bible gives us some wisdom on that. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, and 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. We have to be aware of our hypocrisy. To say and to act in accordance to what we believe, what our convictions are. Otherwise, we confuse people. Paul said to Peter, Peter, you even live like a Gentile. Now how do we know that Peter lived like a Gentile? Acts chapter 11, something amazing happened to Peter. And it reads this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying the same party. You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us, how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning, and remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, Peter realized right there and then, Acts chapter 11, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile when it comes to the gospel message. It's the same gift of grace for everyone. It's the same message of freedom for everyone. All right, Peter got that lesson back in Acts chapter 11. What happened in Galatians chapter 2? It's the same circumcision party. It's the same party that he had this speech with. Hypocrisy crept in. It took Acts chapter 11 for Peter to overcome this phobia of eating with Gentiles. Right? And it wasn't because he disliked Gentiles or, or he was afraid of them. It wasn't that they couldn't be friends. Actually, a Jew like Peter wouldn't have a problem if a Gentile were to eat with them. The problem prior to Acts chapter 11 was when Peter ate with a Gentile in their home because there were these dietary restrictions within the Jewish law and certain foods the Gentiles ate were considered unclean or uncommon. And so if a Gentile ate foods that the, the Jews prepared, well, someone like Peter would know that, you know, this food is kosher. It's fine. But if he went to eat with a Gentile at their home, then who knows? You know, there could be pork or there could be shrimp in there. You know, pork or shrimp. God forbid that a Jew can be Chinese. I mean, that would be impossible. <laughs> no pork or shrimp for real? I mean, have you ever tried ordering dim sum without ordering pork or shrimp? I mean, it's impossible. It's challenging, right? But Peter overcame this after Acts chapter 11. Right? He started eating dim sum with the Gentiles after that, right? And it wasn't until like certain men came from James that he drew back and he started separating himself. And it wasn't because he didn't like what the Gentiles ate. Because he probably had some of that barbecue pork and that shrimp fried rice and thought, man, I'm missing out on this. That was dumb. This is the bomb. But it was because of fear of the circumcision party. He was fearful of them. Now, why was James, the half-brother of Jesus, mentioned in this story? Because James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And if these guys came from James, the senior leader of the Jerusalem church, the center of Judeo-Christian faith, well he's probably going to face some pressures and he's probably going to be facing some expectations and therefore drawing him into fear that Peter experienced because these guys are from James. These guys aren't from like wherever else. These guys are from James, the Jerusalem church. And so this fear caused Peter to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. See, he had the right convictions. He had the right beliefs. But he couldn't do what he knew was right. He was just like what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7. But this is pretty typical of Peter's character, isn't it? Because if you do a study of Peter's character, you'll find that Peter was pretty consistent at starting things off and being pretty successful, doing things that other disciples couldn't do and then fail. Let's take a quick look at Peter's life. Story number one. Peter was the only one to have enough faith in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 14, to walk on water. The only one. Right? But soon after he started walking on water, what happened? He sank. Failure. But he was the only one to be able to do that. Story number two. Matthew 16. Peter was the only one to recognize Jesus was the Christ. 
right? Caesarea Philippi. He's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That was success. He was the only one. You know, he confessed it. His convictions were there. It was a victory. Soon after, Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter took him aside and rebuked Jesus, saying, like, you can't die. You can't go to Jerusalem. You can't die. You've got to be with us. And he's like, what? You made no sense. You just said I was the Christ, and now you're saying don't go. You're <laughs> Failure. Story number three, Matthew 26. Peter's conviction, his confession to stand up for Jesus no matter if all these guys fall away, I'm going to stand here. I will never fall away. I, the great Peter, Ninja Peter, who will cut off Malchus's ear, I will stand. And he really believed that. He really did. He really thought he was going to. But what happened? He ran. Failure. He couldn't even stand up to junior high girls. Right? He couldn't. They were talking to him like, aren't you? The? No, I'm not. Those little junior high girls. They're not easy though. Let me tell you, that's, we make fun of them. They're not easy to kind of get things off. Rooster crows, failure. Failure. And so even after all the failures, we still see Jesus' love towards Peter. He never gave up on him. Never. After Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, Peter is baptized by the Holy Spirit as found in the book of Acts. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's spiritually transformed into a more mature follower of Jesus who has become bold and courageous with his faith. He's been given all these spiritual gifts of wisdom and knowledge and faith and healing and miracles and prophecy. Just amazing spiritual gifts to minister to all these people. So many people came to faith in Jesus Christ because of Peter. So much success. Galatians 2. Failure. See, the godliest of people are still people. Right? And the most successful people in ministry that you can imagine and think of, they are still sinners in the flesh. And whenever the flesh enters in, we are on the road of failure. Fear is of the flesh. Fear is not always bad in, say, like the physical world. If you don't know how to swim, don't jump into deep water. Be afraid, right? That's good. But when it comes to spiritual things, not so good. When you're fearful, when it contradicts the spiritual beliefs that you have and the convictions that you have that are biblical and God-centered and with the heart of Jesus in the middle of that, that fear always leads to failure. When it leads us into hypocrisy, that's just not a good thing. See, Matthew, Matthew really liked showing Peter's failures, didn't he? I mean, those were all in Matthew. Well, keep in mind that Matthew was written as a gospel with the Jew in mind. And, and since Peter was someone whose primary ministry was to Jews, it was so fitting that all of his successes and his failures were recorded in Matthew's gospel. See, God's not hiding anything. He's letting it all out there. He's letting us all see this. And as Christians, we're by no means perfect. We're just justified by Jesus. And so let's take a look at the subject matter of justification. Because that's what this next section is talking about. Peter was a key leader in the church who wasn't exempt from sin, who wasn't exempt from failure, and he was called out on it by Paul. 
Paul wrote about confronting Peter about his hypocrisy, and then he moved on to this subject of justification in this letter to the Galatians, starting in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. The law does not justify sinners. It condemns. It pronounces guilty sinners. But faith in Jesus Christ justifies sinners. And this is why Paul confronted Peter about this because Peter's hypocrisy caused confusion about sinners being justified by faith. We are justified by faith. We cannot earn justification, which is what these Judaizers essentially claimed. And which is what much of the world claims today. Because you think about this. Ask people this question. Ask if they think they will be with God after they die and ask them, why do you believe that? Most will say, yes, I, I think I'm going to be with God after I die. And, and when you ask them why, most will say it's because I think I'm a good person. I think I've done more good things than I've done bad things, so I, you know, I, I'm justified. I don't think I'm making this up because when I talk to my extended family about these things, this is what they say. And when I talk to my friends who aren't believers in Jesus and I ask them this question about what happens after you die and why do you think that you're going to go to heaven, this is what they say. And this is the same thing that people say that are strangers that the Lord has led me to share the gospel with and I ask them these sorts of questions, this is what they say. I don't think it's just me. Because there's this belief out there that people can earn their way into this good relationship with God. Now, not only is that impossible, but think about how much more stressful your life will actually be if you thought that you would earn your way to God. If you really thought that. I have to earn my way to God? See, I have enough difficulty thinking about how I'm going to earn paying for my daughter's college educations. I have four of them. So I also stress out and think about how am I going to earn paying for their weddings? Earn my way to God? No way! Right? Thank God that's something I don't have to earn. Thank God that's a gift. Thank God He doesn't have this list of things for me to do before I can have a good relationship. I come as I am. You come as you are. You don't have a list of things to do in order to come to God. If you don't believe that, look at someone like Zacchaeus. Right? He's up on the tree as a tax collector. He's been cheating people out of money. And Jesus just says, I'm going to go to your house to eat. All right! And then he himself comes to repentance after he encounters Jesus. Jesus didn't say like, I'm going to go to your house to eat, but after you pay these people back, I mean, what are you doing, man? He doesn't do that. He goes and eats first, and then his life is changed. What about the guy hanging next 
to Jesus on the cross. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't go to the guy and be like, oh, you messed up pretty bad, huh? You better get yourself off this cross and go repent. He doesn't do that. He says, you will be with me. We have this misconception about God that we have to get our lives all right. We have to clean ourselves up before we can come to Jesus rather than we come to Jesus and He does it. He does that sort of thing. We don't do that ourselves. He does that stuff. See, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. People like you and me who can't save ourselves. You and I can't clean up ourselves. Jesus does that. And that's justification through grace by faith. Now what is justification? For those of us not familiar with this term. It's to be considered innocent. right? Not guilty. Righteous. That's justification. As opposed to condemnation. Or being given a sentence where we're being pronounced guilty. Unrighteous. Being justified in Christ is not by what we have done. Because that would lead to condemnation. It is a gracious gift from a good God. Where, where sinners can have a right relationship with a holy God because of what Jesus did on the cross. We are forgiven. We are exonerated from our sin. And it doesn't end there. See, God embraces us. He accepts us. He looks upon us and He treats us as righteous so that we can fully experience His love in a courtroom where you are guilty of a crime or you're guilty of what you did. A judge may pronounce that you are innocent if you truly are. You're there. He pronounces you innocent. There's no evidence against you and so you are free. But the thing is that the judge doesn't afterwards come down and disrobe himself or herself and say, I love you. I mean, that would be weird. I'm like, dude, I'm good. Like just, and they don't come down and say, I have great things in store for you. I have an inheritance for you. Like all my stuff, I'm going to give to you. That'd be freaky. But God does that. And He's not simply the judge to say that, yeah, because of my son, you're innocent. Next, gavel comes down. Next, gavel comes down. It's not like that. God is judge, and we are justified by faith through Jesus, but the forgiveness and the innocent verdict, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. It opens the door to so much more. And you know what else? You aren't called back for retrial. Praise God. Like, oh, no, 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 no. We found some new evidence. Bring them back in. We got to do this all over again. He doesn't reopen the case. Once you have Jesus, it's like, you're righteous. You're good. It does no good to bring the retrial. The same Jesus is going to show up again. So you see the beauty of the gospel. You and I don't earn our way to God. You couldn't do it anyway. You couldn't do it. All it is is that it's a simple act of faith in Jesus who gave His life for you so that you could enter into the kingdom of God. You are justified by faith. And that's it. There's nothing you can do. It's by faith. And if you think there's something more that you can do to earn your way into the kingdom of God, you're fooling yourself. You can't. And yet so many in our world think that because they are philanthropists or that because of their charity work 
or because they're so benevolent and because they have such good will that they will be justified before a holy God. And you won't be. Because you will still be guilty of sin. It's not like that offsets it. The sin is still there. It's like a murderer who has totally turned their life around. Right? They've totally turned their life around. They do a bunch of good stuff. But when they're caught, you still have to pay the price for your crime. You still killed somebody. You still have to. You may be saying, well, I didn't kill anyone. I've never done something that extreme. You know, maybe I've told some lies. Maybe I've stole some things in my past. Or maybe I've done these sorts of things. But, but nothing that big. I mean, I've never killed anybody. That's just a matter of who your offense is toward, though, isn't it? Let's think about this. Say you physically attack someone who is much weaker than you. You can probably get away with it. Just like when you're like an older brother and you're picking on your little sister or whatever. You're a bully, but you can probably get away with it. Now you attack someone your own strength, right? You'll fight and you'll probably be about even. You knock his tooth out, you get a bloody nose. You have a black guy and that guy has like a whatever. Like it's pretty even. Now if you attack someone stronger than you, way stronger than you, you'll probably end up in the hospital. Same offense, but you'll probably end up in the hospital. It's just all different, isn't it? And so, think about this. You physically assault a police officer. Does not matter the size. Your consequence is going to be a lot greater. You will be in jail for a while for assaulting a police officer. Now think about this. What if you physically attacked the President of the United States or some head of state of some other nation, you will probably be dead because a secret service or some other equivalent for that head of state, they will take you out before that can happen. Won't they? It depends who. Who is being offended here? Who is being physically harmed here? So, imagine a holy God. A holy God who is far above any head of state in any nation. See, it's not simply the offense. It's who your offense is toward. See, we don't determine our own righteousness. God has already determined that Himself. He is holy. Therefore, anything less than the law is condemned. You are condemned by the law. The one way to justification is Jesus. By faith in Jesus. And you and I don't determine that. The Bible does. He determined that. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because of the law. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Justification by faith is recognizing and humbling ourselves to realize we're sinners. We have a sinful condition. And to faithfully place our trust in Jesus to save us. The way of salvation is Jesus. That's why he confronted Peter because Peter, a senior leader in the church, caused confusion about justification by faith alone. 
That's the Gospel. And Paul was like, Peter, come on, man! Then Paul wrote to the Galatian churches this personal testimony in verses 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul acknowledged Jesus gave His life for him. And let's not get all soured towards Peter. Right? Because I mean, we beat up Peter a little bit here. Because Peter eventually understood this. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter got it. I mean, he just failed. And, and I'm sure he failed after this too. Right? And Paul understood this gospel of grace really deeply because in his previous life, he was a Pharisee. He was there as they stoned Stephen. He was on the road to Damascus to haul away men, women, children, to try them, to put them in jail, to persecute them. And he knew the law so well. I mean, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. And he knew this law condemned, but Jesus set him free. He was justified by faith in Jesus. And we all know people who think that they can't be Christians because they can't live a life like that. They say, uh, you know, uh, if I became a Christian, it'd just be kind of like for now, but then later on, I just can't sustain that sort of a lifestyle. I, I, I can't see how a life as a Christian can be sustained because I've got to keep doing these things. How they're looking at the Christian life is all wrong because it's not something that you are doing. If you're looking at it as something that you are to do, then yes, you're going to fail. We're all going to fail. And unless we come before God knowing that it's nothing that I am doing, but what Jesus has already done for me. He's already done that for me. And in a response of love is in recognition of what Jesus did for me. It's not because I'm earning anything. It's just simply out of love that my life is being changed by Him and I'm living differently. You can't live as a Christian because that's how a Christian is to live. You can't have that kind of a mindset to say like, oh, the Christians do this and that and therefore I have to mold my life in that way. That is really difficult. See, we live by faith. And we faithfully cling to the cross of Jesus. We know our need for Jesus, for Him to justify us. And kind of the fruit of that is a changed life, living for Him. By faith in Jesus, we are justified. Let's pray. Father, thank You for justifying us. Thank You for sending Jesus so that we may be looked upon as innocent, as righteous, as not guilty, of the law. We pray, Lord, that you would continually transform our lives, that your love and your grace is becoming more and more apparent to us. In Jesus' name, amen.